In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, look with mercy on this, your family, on which our Lord Jesus Christ was content to be betrayed and given up into the hands of wicked men, and to suffer death upon the cross, who is alive and glorified with you in the Holy Spirit, God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So welcome to the talk on the seven last words of our blessed Lord. A little bit of an introduction to this devotion. Like any sort of devotion that's scripturally rooted, it came originally from the Jesuits. The Jesuits especially rooted in the Ignatian spirituality that encourages the reader to kind of put themselves there in the story. In my opinion, there's no greater story to put oneself than at the foot of the cross. It's really where we all are supposed to be. And so, the seven last words devotion is a way for us to kind of be transported there, to be at the foot of the cross, listening to our blessed Lord in his final agony. So, a little bit of history. This was started by a Jesuit priest in Peru. We don't know who his name was. In the 17th century... Basically, he developed a service of meditations of Good Friday based on these last words of Jesus. And the devotion spread throughout the world. And these last words became, the meditation on these last words became a part of the Lenten tradition of the church. And for many years, especially before the council, this, this devotion really made up a lot of the Good Friday devotions. Um, one of the things that many Catholics would do on Good Friday is they would go to the church from the hours of 12 to 3. During those hours, it would be time of prayer, meditation, reflection, and oftentimes these words would be preached upon. Um, it was when there was multiple priests who could give reflections on it, and then there'd be um, hymns or other things like that to accompany it. Uh, again, it was this idea of remaining with the Lord for his three hours of agony. However, the reason I really chose this, if I'm being brutally honest with you, is because it was made popularized by one of my heroes, Bishop Sheen. So Archbishop Bolton Sheen was known to have given reflections on the seven last words 58 times in his life. So for 58 Good Fridays, he reflected on the seven last words. And he would draw crowds in the thousands, whether he was in Peoria, at the universities, or St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. He would draw a crowd because people wanted to hear him reflect on these last words. He truly was, as St. Paul says, 
he truly decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ in him crucified. For Bishop Sheen, that was all he cared about, was to preach Christ crucified. And so that has become, for me, a huge part of my Lenten spirituality. For the past few years, I have reflected on these last words, and here I'll show you. And this year, this was the book that I used. Um, so it's basically um, a compiling of just a sermon that he would give on one of the last words. So it's very thin. There are, um, sorry, there are other books that uh, are centered around the last words. One of the ones that I read a few years ago was called um, Cries of Jesus from the Cross. It was an anthology, so it was a rather larger book. And what I loved about it was it had the seven last words, but then it had seven corresponding homilies and sermons given by Archbishop Sheen that kind of tied into it. So really, if you do the math right, it almost kind of fit into the whole season of Lent. So I spent all of Lent just in, immersed in these words, each week focusing on one word. So, like I said, this year was just the little book. Another devotion that I used to do, and I say used to because sadly I didn't really get to it this Lent. Um, I have another Lent to try to do it again. Um, is I would read every Friday during Lent at around 2.30, around that time, one of the passion narratives. I'd read, you know, one week would be Matthew, next week Mark, next week Luke, next week John. Basically, I'd start with Matthew and work my way down to the fourth Sunday, or the Friday of the fourth week of Lent with John. Then for the fifth and sixth Fridays of Lent, I would do Luke's Gospel, and then whatever Gospel was proclaimed on Palm Sunday, I would do the opposite. So, for instance, this year, Palm Sunday's Passion account is Matthew. So, if I would have held to my devotion this year, it would have been Mark and Luke. And then Matthew would have been read on Palm Sunday, and then, of course, John on Good Friday. So, really, I share all this with you because I really think that reflecting on our Lord's passion is really one of the main purposes, if not the purpose of Lent. Because it's what we build up to, is that moment of Good Friday, then to lead us into Easter Sunday. So that's what I that's what that's how I've always approached Lent, is to reflect on the on Christ crucified. So for the talk tonight, um, the handout I gave you, um, first off, please take this with you. Um, what I wanted to do tonight was to make this not really a lecture, but to make it a prayerful experience. Because this was our Lord's last sermon. It was his last words. And because of that, they're not just something that we talk about or we learn. They invite us to meditate on them and to pray with them. So each word has a prayer that I kind of came up with with also the assistance of my little black book. Um, to be honest, a lot of this comes from the book. But again, Bishop Sheen really breaks open these last words so beautifully. 
And I basically have to do in 45 minutes what he would have three hours to do. So I got to move quickly. So, um, but yeah, this is our Lord's last sermon. He mounts his pulpit of the cross, or as Bishop Sheen calls it, the marriage bed of the cross. Because it is in the moment of Christ crucified that he finally marries his bride, the church. And if you look at John's gospel, what flows out from the side of Christ after he has committed the spirit is water and blood, symbolizing the life of the church. So, just like Eve was formed out of the side of Adam, the church flows from the side of Christ on the cross. Or as one of my favorite hymns, The Church's One Foundation, says, From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Truly, I think that we can really look at these words as almost like vows of Christ to his church. So, pray with these words tonight. And as a matter of fact, as we get to the end of each word, how I structured this was, we're actually going to recite these prayers. Um, you'll kind of know when it's time. I'll say something like, and we pray, or something like that. Um, and I'll start the first line, but again, you can recite it out loud, or you can just say it to, your, to yourself. Again, these are what I kind of was reflecting on, but these may not be your words. So if you have any other words that you want to say with the particular word, then pray that. But this is just to kind of help you guide your way really through these final days of Lent. And so I hope that this night particularly will just be a time of reflection and really to just pray with these words as we enter the most holiest of weeks of Lent. So with that out of the way, let us begin. The first word. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 33 to 34. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And they casted lots to divide his clothing. So one thing to consider when we look at this first word is the nature of crucifixion. When, when people were crucified, it was so heinous. As a matter of fact, there are reports of uh, great thinkers of the time saying that crucifixion was one of the worst ways for anyone to die. It was so barbaric that not even Roman citizens were crucified. But it was, a, it was an act of torture really popularized by the Romans. And one of the things that's interesting about crucifixion is those who were standing at the foot of the cross were expecting something from Jesus. Really, they were expecting him to say something. Um, 
the, the philosopher Cicero said, often those who were crucified often cursed their executioners, their families, and even some would curse their own mothers. They would curse the day they were born. They would say some of the most horrible, blasphemous things, and sometimes they have their tongues cut out. So, crucifixion was horrid. And so these soldiers were probably expecting the same thing, as were most of the onlookers. But the words of our Lord are not ones of anger or cursing. His first word is mercy. Bishop Sheen talks about these first three words follow a graduation in intensity. The first word is for his enemies. The second is for sinners. And the third one is for saints. So the first word is for his enemies. He asks forgiveness for those who perpetrate, perpetrate this horrid thing to him. And really what I find incredible when we look at this word is how Jesus saves us is really because we are ignorant. Because we know not what we do. If we look at the angels, for example, they sinned once and for all and they were done. Because they were pure spirit and pure intelligence. So once they committed to sinning against God, that was it. That's why there's no hope for redemption of the devil or the demons. They are forever separated from God. But what saves us is really ignorance. Because if we really knew what we did when we would sin, like knew it to the point of the angels, then we could never be saved. And our Lord knew that. And that's why he says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, we come now to Jesus as he mounts his pulpit, knowing how much love overflows from his sacred heart, and we pray, my Jesus, I do not want to know this world. All I want to know is you, Jesus. Specifically, all I want to know is the depth of your love, that you would so go to the cross for my sins. Oh, my sweet Savior, you are all I desire to know in this life, and I know it's through holy ignorance that I am even able to be forgiven of my sins. As you mount your holy cross and proclaim your final sermon, my only petition is this, help me in my unbelief, and thus be ignorant of the world in the strangest of paradoxes. The second word. This day you shall be with me in paradise. From Luke chapter 23, verses 44 to 46. Now it was about noon. Whoops. No, I'm on the wrong one. I'm sorry. Okay. One of the criminals who was hanging there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? 
Save yourself, thus. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we have indeed been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Can hear me okay? I feel like this keeps kind of coming in and out. So I'm going to go to my little black book here for the next introduction to this word. And again, I know I'm flying through these really fast, so. There's this great fable about who this person on the right was. Because this is the only time really we ever know about him. And this is really the only time we ever hear from him. So I'm going to read you this little short story. Um, again, this is not scriptural. This is kind of more of a fable story. But I think it sheds light on who this person was. There is a legend to the effect that when, to escape the wrath of Herod, St. Joseph and the Blessed Virgin were fleeing into Egypt with the divine child, and they stopped at a desert inn. The Blessed Mother asked the Lady of the Inn for water in which to bathe the infant Jesus. The Lady then asked if she might not bathe her own child, who was suffering from leprosy, in the same waters with which the divine child had been immersed. Immediately upon touching those waters baptized with the divine presence, the child became whole. Her child advanced in age and grew up to be a thief. He is business, now hanging on the cross at the right hand of Christ. I heard in the homily a few years ago, of all days epiphany, and the priest said, the wise men could not have gone back to Herod. For they went another way, not because they didn't want to they didn't want to go see Herod, but going back to Herod meant going back the way of death. Really, once one meets Jesus, one can never go back the same way he came. So that was the line from that homily. And I share those two things in contrast with that story we just heard in that. Because one thing I've always wondered when I looked on this gospel is, what moved the thief on the right to that proclamation of faith? In Matthew and Mark's gospel, you just hear that he just taunts Jesus and that's it. And he very well could have done that at first. We don't know what time it was in the Passion when he finally had this moment of realization. But I really wonder... What moved him to change? And really, we won't know on this side of heaven. But I think we can say the cry of the thief on the right is the cry of every human soul. Jesus, remember me. As humans, I think we can easily, I think I can say we, we fear being forgotten. I think that is the one thing that we dread is to be, is to not be remembered. And yet, how many in our world today remain on the left side of our Lord, never fully wanting to be remembered? 
or never wanting or asking, just simply asking that Jesus would remember them. But they would just rather stay in their self-pity and in their sadness. Wanting to be saved, quote, saved, but not the way that Jesus saves. Saved from pain, but not from everlasting pain. So, this word, in a sense, as I'm trying to keep it moving, what we see is why Jesus dies on the cross. Because he dies for the salvation of souls. And how fitting it is that the first soul to escort him into his heavenly kingdom is a thief. Truly, he stole paradise that day. So for so many who never even think or are afraid to cry out to Jesus, we pray, O oh my Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus throughout the gospel, we hear you telling those poor souls that approach you, your sins are forgiven. We now understand what awaits souls to truly repent of their sins and sister, Mary the wife of Clotus, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And then he said to his disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, he took her into his own home. So if you remember at the first word, I had talked about there's a progression in the words of Jesus in those first three words. He forgives his enemies, and then he forgives the sinners. And now he gives us his saints. An incredible gift. Really, we can call this the second nativity of our Lord. Gone from Nazareth to Calvary in a few months we have been. Think about where we were just, what, three, four months ago? We were seeing glory to God in the highest. O come all ye faithful. All this glorious, beautiful music and proclaiming that our Lord has been born and now we're at Calvary. But for Mary, this was her son. It was a lifetime of love that hung on that cross. If we go back to Canaan, we see this transition, though. 
In John's Gospel, we see the progression of Mary from being the mother of Jesus to the mother of us all. And particularly when, he's, when she goes from being mother to woman. Remember, he said, woman, what business of this is mine? When Bishop Sheen would reflect on this, he would say, when Jesus said that, it didn't mean anything derogatory. But he was asking her, you, do you know what this means? If I reveal myself and make this my first sign, you are no longer just my mother. You will become the mother of everybody. You will take on that role of the new Eve. He calls her woman because she is the new Eve, the new mother of creation. And how beautiful is it at this moment when Jesus looks down on his blessed mother, we have another annunciation, another mission given to Mary. Behold your son. Truly what is so beautiful about our faith is that we are children of Mary. And I, I really do... My relationship with the Blessed Mother is a topic onto itself. But I have really come to learn that we are so blessed to have such a wonderful mother in the Blessed Mother. Nothing offends our Lord more than those who do not love his mother. You know, and I think one of the reasons people have a hard time with Mary is because she brings us to a place we don't want to go. She brings us to the cross of Jesus. Who really wants to go there? Eleven of his apostles didn't want to go there. But that is what she does. She brings us to her suffering son. So may we be like that beloved disciple. And may we with Mary, our mother, with her, pray. Lovely Mary, dressed in blue. Ready to come today, you share the sufferings of your most holy Son. The sword predicted by blessed Simeon has finally struck your heart. With the beloved disciple, I stand next to you, next to His holy throne. What we glimpse before us is what we will see in heaven. And so, my beloved Queen, my mother, just as it is. forsaken me. When reading from the Gospel according to Mark chapter 15, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? It's incredible that 
this is the only words spoken by our blessed Lord in Mark's Gospel. In Mark's account of the Passion, Jesus is totally abandoned. There is no repentant thief. There is no blessed mother. There is no blessed there is no beloved disciple. It's only him. And this is where these words get a little bit harder to reflect upon. Because Jesus at this moment endures one of the most agonizing sufferings that he has had to endure. The total abandonment of the Father. If we look at John's Gospel, Jesus is always doing the, the will of the Father. He says always, the Father and I are one. Really, the Gospels give us our foundation of the Trinity. The Father and the Son are so united, so closely in that love, that bond. But at this moment, He's abandoned. The Son is abandoned by the Father. And it disgraces creation so much that the Son is refusing to shine. Darkness is covering the whole earth because creation is appalled by what is happening. And yet he suffered this because it's what happens when one is totally depraved of God's love. St. Augustine reminds us that our hearts are restless until they rest in the Lord. Well, this heart of Jesus, the sacred heart, has been broken. It breaks for those who abandon God. It breaks for those who doubt His presence. But worst of all, it breaks for those who are indifferent to God. My friends, I think we can all agree that this is the sin of our age. People just don't care. They don't care. And I think that is what agonized our Lord's heart so much. And it really should agonize our hearts. This is the sin of our age. And it must move us to the same sorrow. You know, at least those who scorned at Jesus cared enough to even scorn at him. You know, those who hate the Lord, at least there's something there to hate. But those who are indifferent, I don't know what to do. And Jesus felt that. He felt that pain. So truly, we must ache for that sin of indifference. But most of all, because we cannot stand to hear our Savior cry from the cross any longer, in his total abandonment, we pray, Oh my, oh my Jesus, Jesus, the last three words that flow from your divine lips were words of mercy and comfort. But this one is different. You may allow to abandonment. You may endure the worst pain for the soul to be abandoned by God. Oh Lord, how many souls that depart from you or worse are indifferent to you? Jesus, please have mercy on me.
fifth word, I thirst. Reading from the Gospel of John. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scriptures, I am thirsty. There's a poem that I kind of that I want to share with you. Oh wait, that's the next one. I'm sorry. That's the next word. We'll get there. So we're progressing more and more into the final words of our Lord. The last word that we just meditated on was the suffering of man without God. But this word is the suffering of God without man. <coughs> One of the things that's often a theological debate, and that is a topic for a semester, is God's relation to creation and how God sees us. And when we think about it, He doesn't really need us to exist. But we completely need him. Totally need him. And right now, he suffers our blessed Lord. Another great parting. He is thirsting for the love of each and every person. The indifference of man has now pierced him. And now suddenly... Even after he has wailed in abandonment and feels so utterly depraved, he still has enough love in his heart to still say to the same people who just do not care about him, I am thirsty. You know, I think the world so misunderstands what it means to love or what love really is. I share with you, I share this with you because I'm doing a big paper on this topic, <laughs> a quote by very known feminist, atheist, um, just, uh, I don't know what else to call her, Judith, Judith Butler, who describes what love is. Love is not a state, a feeling, a disposition, but an exchange, uneven, fraught with history, with ghosts, with longing that are more or less legible to those who try to see one another with their own faulty vision. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. I just thought that was a good quote. <laughs> I thought it kind of reflects what we are discussing. But I think what I see in that quote is really what we understand, what the world understands love is, is the fulfillment of my own desires. It's using people. I use this person to fulfill what I want. That's what love is, right? At least that's what the world thinks. But what I love, what is interesting about that is you can't point to anything with that. What is love if it's just usury? Well, there's no real kind of image for usury being used. But for us, love is not an abstract, abstract concept. It's a person. It's a person who is love itself. And so love itself is a gift 
God loving, God loves, God who is love, loves by creating, by revealing, by suffering, and by uniting. Creation, revelation, redemption, Eucharist. That is how God loves. That is how we are to love, too. So the lover of our life is no ghost. He is the Lord. And love itself is expiring on the cross. And he longs for that love that kept him going all those years. And he still thirsts today. Almost begging for a drink, like he did that Samaritan woman, from each and every one of us. And so for those times, O oh Lord, when we have not satisfied your thirst for our love, or just gave you one drop, but kept it all for ourselves, we pray, O oh Lord Jesus, how much you give me, and how will I give back to you? How many times you have called me, and I ignored you? You knocked at the door of my soul, and there was no answer. You asked to drink from the wellspring that is my soul, and you said, I give you the memory of all of my sins. Now you cry out in thirst, and I have nothing to give you. Your cries continue to pierce my soul, but yet I cannot help but ask, even in your thirst, do we still meet with such sorrow for my sins and transgressions that all I can do is weep in repentance? The sixth word. It is finished. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge of wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. There's often a debate about if this is the last word, or if the last word that I have on here is the last word. Well, I put it as the last word, so it is the last word. <laughs> um, but it, it can be both ways. Bishop Sheen always would say, he says it is finished because it is the culmination of his work on earth. But he has one last gift to give back to the Father, and that's the Spirit, which is, will be the last one. But right now, we come to the completion of the God-man's masterpiece. The redemption of creation. When we look at how we fell, you have three things. Adam, Eve, and the tree. The fall of disobedient Adam, Adam now made bright, in the obedience of Christ. The proud Eve finished in the humble virgin. The tree of the garden made new in the tree of the cross. Christ completes the redemption of creation. He 
He also redeems our state. Divine life, salvation, has been purchased. Now we have to own it. You know, Protestants often criticize Catholics for not believing that Jesus achieved salvation. They always say, oh, you believe you're not saved. Or they'll ask this question, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? That's always a fun question. But the way I always understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, their view is that salvation is just something that you accept once, and that's it. It's like a purchase. It's like you go to the store, you buy a gallon of milk, you've got it, and that's it. But it doesn't do anything. Martin Luther always used to say when he looks at humanity, that humanity is just nothing but dumb. I was going to use another word, but this is church. <laughs> dumb that our Lord just covers over with a white garment. That's how we're saved. In his mind. But yet, I look at, but particularly, one of my good friends, he's a Philadelphian priest, his name is Father Di Maria. He is as Philadelphian as Northeastern as you can get. And he always would tell me, when Evangelical Ed comes up to you and asks you, have you been saved? What you can say to Evangelical Ed is, I have been redeemed, but like St. Paul, I am working out my salvation with fear and trembling. We all will have our own Good Fridays. Jesus had a Good Friday, and so we will have our own. Salvation is not just something that we are gifted. We are gifted it. Jesus wins it for us. We have to own it. We have to let it transform us. As Catholics, we believe that the price that Jesus paid for us on the cross completely transforms us and makes us like him. Or in Latin, alters Christus. And please tell me if I'm butchering that, Father or Deacon. <laughs> so, our Lord has freed the salvation, the waters of salvation. It's now up to us to fill our souls with that water. And thus, we can finally do our part to take our Lord off his cross. Because he will remain on that cross till each and every human person has accepted and has allowed that gift of salvation to overflow in their souls. And I realize I'm getting close to time, and I want to share with you this poem that I think is so beautiful, and I think it finally um, sums up this word. Because of that, I will let you pray that prayer number six on your own later on. Instead, I want to read this poem. It's called, There is a Man on the Cross by Elizabeth Cheney. Whenever there is silence all around me, by day or by night, I am startled by a cry. It came down from the cross. The first time I heard it, I went out and searched and found a man in the throes of crucifixion. I said, I will take you down and try to take these nails out of your feet. But he said, let them be, for I cannot be taken down. Not until every man, every woman, and every child comes together to take me down. And I said, 
but I cannot bear your cry. What can I do? He said, go out about the whole world, tell everyone that you meet that there is a man on the cross. The seventh and final word of our Lord and Savior, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke, chapter 23. It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sunlight faded and the curtain of the temple was torn. Then Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Who would have believed what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a sapling before him, like a shoot from the parched earth. He had no majestic bearing to catch our eye, no beauty to draw us to him. He was spurned and avoided by men. A man of suffering, knowing pain, like one of whom you turned your face, spurned, and we held him with no esteem. Yet it was our pain that he bore, our sufferings he endured. We thought of him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our sins, crushed by our iniquity. He bore the punishments that makes us whole. By his wounds we were healed. We had all gone astray like sheep, all following our way. But the Lord laid upon him the guilt of us all. Though harshly treated, he submitted and did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, or a sheep silent before shearers, he did not open his mouth. Seized and condemned, he was taken away. Who would have thought of any more of his destiny? For he was cut off from the land of the living, struck for our sins, of his people. That was the reading from the suffering servant from the book of Isaiah. He has given everything. And now he gives the last thing he had, the spirit. He breathes his last. He is no more. What else can we say? Where do we go from here? We go with Mary. We pray. Oh, Mary.
Well, I'll open this up for questions if you have any. But before I end this conversation, this, we've been this reflection tonight, I think it's something important to remember that even though we have just went through the seven sorrows and the seven words of our Lord, but this is not the end. We are truly an Easter people. And we await that joyful day when we can sing, praise the Lord. We can rejoice that He has triumphed over death. So even though these, were, these words invoke such hard feelings. I read from you, though, this final quote. It's from the exalted of the Easter Vigil. Because we are an Easter people. O wonder of your humble care for us, O love, O charity beyond all telling, to ransom a slave you gave away your son, O truly necessary sin of Adam, destroyed completely by the death of Christ, O oh, happy fault that earned so great, so glorious a Redeemer. Thank you.